All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 12th episode. I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, the nonpareil, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, it is indeed our 12th episode, but no need to consider anniversary gifts yet. If you hearken back to our somewhat overly zealous early days, you'll remember that we were producing episodes every few weeks before we settled on this more realistic monthly schedule. So we actually began in November. We'll save those fireworks for later in the year. Instead, we're here in early August as the pandemic drags on, but some things are getting back to normal. Glenn, how are you feeling this month? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of waiting for that summer lull to kick in, and it just hasn't yet. I mean, it's been business at a slightly higher pace. I think pandemic, at least in the world we operate in, Rory, is causing people to have a few more meetings. And the other thing is, is people are taking a lot fewer vacations. I think we're definitely seeing that impact as well. But I, I was looking forward to this podcast because I would thought I'd be able to come back and very excitedly report to the group that I'd finally read Franz Kafka, which I have. <laughs> um, but it turns out that wasn't the most exciting reading I did in the last month. So, and I know we'll get into that. Sure, sure. Yeah, there have been some interesting developments since last we talked. And I, I feel like our guest today is in a particularly unique position to discuss all that. So Glenn, why don't you introduce who our guest is? We got yet another fantastic guest joining us this afternoon. Our friend and colleague, Todd Snitchler, president and CEO of the Electric Power Supply Association. Todd and I first met when he was chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission. Before that, he actually was an elected state official in the state of Ohio, represented, if I remember correctly, the Canton area. He uh, spent several years in the legislature, did a stint as chairman of the Public Utilities Commission, stopped by a few law firms, and is now settled in as president of the Electric Power Supply Association, or as we know it, EPSA. So, Todd, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Thanks, Glenn. Glad to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Since the last episode, two political corruption scandals with major electricity industry ties have gone public. And while one is in Illinois and the other in Ohio, they share many commonalities. Both involve large utilities that are politically influential in their respective states, ComEd in Illinois and First Energy in Ohio, embroiled in federal investigations of millions of dollars in bribes and allegations of misdeeds by state officials, including the Speaker of each state's House of Representatives, Mike Madigan in Illinois, and Larry Householder in Ohio in connection with the utility's successful lobbying to secure state-funded nuclear subsidies. Zex in Illinois from the Future Energy Jobs Act and House Bill 6 in Ohio. Before we get into the details, Rory, maybe it's important to go through a few disclaimers and, and caveats just so we can set the stage for the discussion appropriately. First of all, we only know what is publicly available. And in Illinois, we have a deferred prosecution agreement signed by ComEd's parent company, which is Exelon. And in that for prosecution agreement, they're agreeing to certain facts. So in Illinois, we have a slightly different scenario in that we have the major utility company agreeing to the facts. In Ohio, we have a criminal complaint uh, with charges against the Speaker of the House, as you mentioned, and his associates. But we have First Energy, at least the utility involved in this matter, 
uh, not necessarily agreeing to the facts. So it's a slightly different posture. So we got to, you know, be cognizant of that, you know, as we're talking about the two situations. It's also important for the audience to know that neither First Energy or Exelon are currently clients of GT Power or EPSA. Uh, at some point, those companies did have relationships with both these organizations, but at this point, they do not. Um, we're going to focus on the events in Ohio and Illinois and what they mean for regulatory policy and markets moving forward. Uh, we're not here to cast any personal aspersions. In fact, Todd and I both, and, and you too, Rory, have friends in both these companies. Um, so we're certainly not here to pass any judgments on people. And uh, our goal is to discuss the issues, the allegations, and the emissions and their impacts. We're not here to accuse any individuals of unethical or criminal activity. We'll leave that up to somebody else. So with that said, Todd, why don't you get us started? You obviously have tremendous experience in Ohio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where exactly we are in Ohio, how we got here, and then we'll maybe get into what it means going forward. Sure. Thanks, Glenn. You've asked for quite a bit of information. Uh, as recently as about three weeks ago now, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney made public what is an 82-page complaint alleging the largest political corruption scandal potentially in Ohio's history involving the Speaker of the House, now former Speaker Larry Householder, and four of his associates, as well as Company A, which has been identified by virtually everyone as the First Energy Corporation based in Akron, Ohio. The complaint alleged all kinds of political corruption and issues involving pay-to-play and the use of uh, 501c4 dark money organizations, all of which were involved with the passage of what is known as House Bill 6, which was the nuclear bailout bill passed by the Ohio General Assembly. For those who weren't paying as much attention when the speaker was elected, uh, he unseated the then sitting speaker, Ryan Smith, who has since left the legislature and is now a president of a college in Southern Ohio, but he unseated him with the support of half of the Republican caucus and approximately 26 of the Democrat members of the House to become speaker. And one of the first things he did after getting to the dais was to talk about the importance of nuclear energy and the saving of the Davis, Bessie and Perry plants and the formation of a study committee to work on gathering information to determine the best path forward. In hindsight, it seems pretty clear the best path forward had been determined, uh, but that committee met and within approximately 90 days of his taking the speakership, the bill passed, despite the objection of literally hundreds of witnesses who said it was bad public policy for any number of reasons, including ourselves, P3, uh, environmental organizations, many of the business groups also opposed it, uh, but it was supported by First Energy and First Energy Solutions, now Energy Harbor. The bill passed and went to the Senate, the Senate ultimately passed the bill and the governor signed it the same day that it was passed. And there was a long fought campaign between those who favored House Bill 6 and wanted to retain the bailout provisions and those who opposed it. And the conduct uh, during the course of that political battle included millions of dollars that were spent on advertising to oppose the repeal efforts for House Bill 6, which is much of what gave rise to the complaint in the case that's been filed by the U.S. attorney. And that spending was somewhere in the neighborhood of $38 million uh, and included payments for inside information, for consultants that were providing political cover for bill sponsors, for uh, advertisements that included threats of China taking over the power grid in Ohio on television, millions of mailers sprinkled across the state. It was an all-out push 
to oppose the referendum and deny the people of Ohio the right to vote on whether or not the bill should stand. Ultimately, that effort was successful. Uh, they were not able to gather sufficient signatures to put the issue on the ballot and the law went into effect, after which time it was determined that the charges will go into effect starting in January of 2021 and would extend for a period of approximately six years. Uh, that's a lot in there for sure, Todd. So, I mean, when, when this first came out, I remember you and I talking and, you know, both of us told everybody, you got to read this uh, this complaint because it was just really compelling reading. I mean, there, there was so much in there that just left you with, you know, sort of the jaw hanging open. Did anything sort of stand out to you as something that was most offensive? And keep in mind, these are these are just accusations at this point. Right. They have not been proven and adjudicated. But did anything stand out to you as something that really, really just was beyond the pale? Yeah, these allegations are profound in their scope and in the amount of dollars that are spent. As a former member of the Ohio House, any occasion like this, really, it's disappointing. It causes a greater lack of trust with government. It makes those who think that government is rigged anyway, believe that their position is valid as opposed to what may be actually happening in the state. And frankly, the scope of the allegations is absolutely stunning. When the U.S. attorney said this was the broadest investigation and they were utilizing the RICO statute, which has been used to take down organized crime in other parts of the country, you know, I think at first blush, people thought that can't be right. And then you read the 82-page complaint, and it certainly is more understandable why the U.S. attorney believes that that is the appropriate standard uh, that they should be pursuing for the claims that are being made as part of that complaint. So the amount of dollars and the scope of what was being contemplated was really the breathtaking portion of that complaint. Yeah, I mean, there certainly are elements of organized crime as you read the complaint. I mean, this was a, a very sophisticated operation, again, led allegedly by the Speaker of the House and funneled and, and, and financed, you know, largely from one corporate entity to the tune of $60 million. I mean, it's, it is a pretty compelling set of alleged facts as presented in the complaint. So I think the interesting thing, Glenn, to note is that when the U.S. attorney uh, was making the announcement at the press conference, he made a point to say this 82-page complaint is solely from the work that was done in collecting information in a covert basis. So the wiretaps that were secured, the wire that was worn by at least one uh, person who was a part of the complaint, who was working on behalf of the FBI. And he made it very clear that the overt or the more public portion of the investigation had only just begun in late July. And so I think it will bear watching as the U.S. attorney does a broader investigation to see what they're able to uncover and who else is alleged to have been involved. And then we'll see if further indictments follow and what the posture of the case will be. But as I have had to explain to a number of folks, as I read it and have heard the U.S. attorney speak, this is the tip of the iceberg and they have a substantial amount of work yet to be done. And so I think that will bear continued watching to be sure. In your reading of it, how much is First Energy complicit? And I don't mean that in any sort of legal sense, but just from the reading, were they, were they actively involved in saying, yeah, this is a great idea, let's move forward with it? Or were they just being led through this and almost being held hostage by it? Far be it from me to assume that I know what someone else was thinking, but I think the record is very clear going back years, literally, that Chuck Jones and other members of First Energy had indicated how important they believed it was that the two nuclear units remain open in Ohio, 
that was true when they owned the units through First Energy Solutions. That remained true as they were talking about divestiture and the sale of those resources and ultimately the bankruptcy proceedings of First Energy Solutions and then the spinoff and the creation of Energy Harbor. The commentary that came from the company was without exception supportive of the continued operation of these units and the need for diverse uh, resources in the state of Ohio. And these were zero emission resources, which seemed to be a strange argument to make from a company that predominantly owned coal-based resources until they spun off, sold, or closed many of those resources. So I, I don't know for sure, but it certainly is an interesting question you pose about whether or not someone was walked down the, the garden path or if this was simply the natural outcome of a policy preference uh, from that organization. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what Todd said earlier is, is, is the right point in terms of where we are in this story. I mean, I continue to think we're probably on chapter three or four of a 20 page novel. And I think the answer to your question will be found out over the next several months as prosecutors continue to investigate. I'm sure they're looking at, you know, hard drives, documents, cell phone records, text messages, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we'll, we'll find a little bit more out about what exactly that relationship was and, you know, whether there was any criminal activity or extensive criminal activity occurring there. I, I think you meant a 20 chapter book there, Glenn, a 20 page Oh, book sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. 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 Uh, yeah. But I, I agree with you. And, and Todd, I think you made a really good point there as well about First Energy CEO Chuck Jones and the rest of the executive staff have indicated over the past few years through their quarterly calls and, and elsewhere that keeping the nuclear units running uh, come hell or high water was a major focus for them. So so that 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 is indicative. So, Todd, if you were the Public Utility Commission of Ohio, if you were PUCO Chairman Randazzo, uh, what are you doing in the face of this complaint? Well, that's a great question. And first, I'll say that I uh, will not represent to know what uh, Chairman Randazzo would do. But if you ask me if this had happened during my tenure as chairman, and I'm curious what Glenn thinks as a former chairman as well, you can do really one of three things. You can elect to say this will play itself out in the courts and not engage in any way whatsoever. I think that is unlikely. I think the second thing you could do is exercise oversight and bring the utility in and do a investigation, either cursory or thorough at the direction of the commission and try to determine what the proper course of action might be based on what you learn. Or thirdly, you could initiate a proceeding that requires the company to come in and demonstrate that the information provided in their previous rate cases and what have you was supportable, justifiable, and in effect, bring them in for a reopening of their most recent rate case in an effort to determine that everything was done above board. So I think those are probably three of the main options that would exist. I can't speculate as to what Chairman Randazzo might do. But I certainly, at a minimum, would have taken the second option and most likely would have taken the third option, because if ever there was a time that the public needed to have confidence that the regulators and legislators who have oversight over these monopolistic utilities are doing their due diligence, that time is now. Yeah, I'll chime in on that. I, I, I agree. And I, I think that's exactly how I would come on down on this as well, Todd. I mean, you almost have a duty. Uh, as a public utility commissioner to, to, to look into this. I mean, you got the potential misappropriation of ratepayer dollars here. 
you know, you need to be able to look the ratepayers of your state in the eye and said, I did my best to make sure that none of your your dollars are being used to fuel this activity. So yes, I, I think you have to go there. And then what I think are kind of the more interesting questions are the ones going forward. How, you got to fix this, if you will, uh, to make sure this situation is resolved uh, from the PUCO's perspective. But then you got to make, also make sure that there's protections in place that stuff like this never happens again. And I think that's going to be a, you know, a two to five year conversation that's occurring in commissions throughout the country. Well, as the only person on this call who has not been a former Utility Commission chairman, I'm intrigued. How would you personally be feeling in this situation? It seems like one where, I mean, you finally kind of have the limelight that, that Glenn, you and I, we always talk about how, you know, the boring good and how a lot of these issues often fly under the radar of public perception. Now, this is the spotlight is on you here, but it's a very withering and, and hot spotlight. How, how are you personally feeling in a situation like this? Well, I mean, I was on the commission post Enron and there was Enron implications in Pennsylvania. I mean, they were a very active participant and certainly there's some parallels. It's not a great parallel, but there's some parallels. And, you know, yeah, you're talking to your Bureau of Audits. You're talking to your prosecutorial wing of your PUC to try to figure out what best to do. But this is, this is what you're put there to do. I mean, this is your job as a regulator to look out for the public interest in situations like this. So uh, Todd, you may have some thoughts. I would kind of view this as, you know, this is this is what I was put here to do, so I'm gonna do my job. Mm-hmm. Right, I'd, I'd share that sentiment. And Rory, I think the other piece in Ohio in particular is that this is a legislative set of allegations. There's been no allegations of impropriety at the commission, so the commission might have the cleanest hands to be in a position to do an investigation. But I do think what you're seeing in Ohio now as a result of that legislative concern is there are multiple repeal bills that have been filed, at least two of which are bipartisan, one of which appears to be uh, led by the Republicans alone to try and clean up the mess of a situation that House Bill 6 has turned out to be. And I think you are seeing a strong desire to remedy the process. And maybe this is where it's different than it might be in Illinois, where the fruit of the poison tree is still deemed to be poison. And even Governor DeWine, who had initially indicated that he supported the outcome of House Bill 6, within 24 hours elected to change that perspective and say that we need to repeal House Bill 6 and have a frank conversation about what needs to be done to either replace or do some different legislative approach to try and address the questions that were raised under House Bill 6. And so you're going to see a profound uh, sense of urgency, I think, in Ohio to repeal House Bill 6. And then mm-hmm. what comes next probably doesn't happen until the next General Assembly in January of 2021. And even then, it will bear watching if this turns Ohio uh, away from their perspective to be opposed to renewable portfolio standards or clean energy. And if we're going to see a more uh, warm embrace of those types of generation resources, or if things are going to remain the same, uh, the characters may change, but the outcome uh, may not change at all. That, that bears watching in Ohio. Do you have a prediction there, Todd? As far as the RPS, I think you still have a pretty tough row to hoe. I think solar has broken through in Ohio. 
and would be something that would be supported by many in the General Assembly. I think wind mm -hmm. continues to be troubled in the state of Ohio. Uh, as you have probably noted, there are wind setback issues and legislation that seems to come in virtually every General Assembly to try and address those issues. And there does not appear to be any kind of coalescence around a resolution with wind, but certainly there appears to be with solar. What happens with the nuclear units, I think, is up in the air. Uh, I think the loudest advocates for saving the nukes were First Energy and Energy Harbor. So any legislator that wanted to walk into a uh, buzzsaw would sponsor a bill <laughs> we'd like to do the exact same thing over again. Uh, so I think that's going to be a challenge. And I think the mm -hmm. economics may actually play out more than they were in the past. And that's frankly a good outcome for consumers. Probably about two years ago, I believe there was some question in PJM about what was going to happen with all the nuclear units. And they did some analysis on this and how far the RPS standards or the goals would be set back if nuclear units were shut down. And there was a pretty strong collective gasp from sections of the membership, I think, at seeing where that was going to move things. And so that created some support for them. How does a scandal like this impact any otherwise perfectly legitimate consumer desires? Well, if I put my legislator hat back on, my concern is that I want to continue to do what's right for my constituents, and I think most mm -hmm. legislators hold that view. And then I think it will force a broader discussion about what may be better for consumers, what consumers say they want, and what can be done economically in certain parts of the state or in certain regions of the country. If you look and think carefully about what that might mean for broader public policy implications. I think there is the potential for some good ideas to be caught up with the perception that they're associated with nefarious conduct or allegations of bad conduct. And so there is the potential for uh, that to be a problem. The other issue you run into is there are those who will continue to say, regardless of the significant amount of admitted to conduct in other parts of the country, that despite all of that, we should continue to push through policies that would be beneficial to those who were the bad actors or alleged to be the bad actors, because in addition, you'll also get some side benefit that might be useful to other uh, market participants. And so it becomes an interesting political example to watch, as you see in Illinois, where there's a group of environmental interests that are continuing to push one alternative that would benefit Exelon, although Exelon is in a position where perhaps they don't have as much political influence as they did before the allegations and the, the criminal complaint was adjudicated. And so I think that will vary based on jurisdiction and based on the posture of each of the cases. But Glenn, I don't know how you think about that. Yeah, Todd, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. And I think there's a broader historical trend here that's worth noting. And that is, you know, whenever policymakers, whether they be regulators or legislators, attempt to go around the market and think they can outsmart or outfox market outcomes, bad things tend to happen. And I mean, the history of, you know, nuclear economics is such a, you know, a great example of that. You know, and you look at the market monitors, you know, projections of nuclear plant profitability, and they go up and down depending on, you know, what market conditions are. And if you looked, you know, certainly, you know, April, March, those facilities were in a tough spot financially. I venture to say when we see, 
you know, the latest uh, market monitor numbers, those plants are going to be performing a lot better because the market has bounced back and prices have come back from those lows just a couple months ago. So yeah, markets are cyclical and any efforts, uh, like I said, on behalf of legislators to outsmart them, pick their resources. I mean, I can vividly remember getting arguments with uh, President Solomon at the New Jersey BPU convinced that he had to subsidize new natural gas plants because they were never going to build a new natural gas plant in uh, New Jersey ever again. And that prices were at all time low. Well, guess what? I mean, three plants have been built maybe four, and prices are even lower than they were in 2011. So I think it's you know just a broader point to be made about the, the, the perils of picking winners and losers in the marketplace and then picking the horses you want to subsidize doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, yes, there's a conversation that, you know, is going to happen on carbon and the proper valuation of carbon and what have you. But, you know, just efforts to go around the market tend to, you know, end up in bad places for consumers and in the long run, you know, not good for the market. And I, Glenn, I think that sentiment is best encapsulated by the statement that's something along the lines of when policymakers try to choose resources and get them right, consumers lose. And the examples you just listed certainly speak to that point uh, right on the money. Yeah, we've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. It's, it just keeps getting replayed every seven years. So with that background as context, what legislative or regulatory activity impacting PJM's markets do you foresee? I mean, I think Todd's right. We'll see, you know, legislation in Ohio, uh, and that'll play itself out. I think um, Illinois, we'll get to Illinois more in a minute. But I mean, in terms of PJM and what PJM needs to do to address this, I, I don't necessarily see any major changes as a result of these two scandals. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the minimum offer price rule has a role to play here. But at least at this point, this is largely an issue that the state policymakers need to clean up and not PJM. Todd, you may have a different take than that. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you've got to solve the problem where you found it. And then if there are market implications, that's the secondary issue that would have to be addressed by PJM. But I think right now, both states are trying to address and resolve what needs to be done in order to ensure that they're in the proper position. Okay, uh, just to wrap up on Ohio, Todd, I mean, one of the amazing things, you know, whether it's in press statements or for political leaders, like that's been noticeable throughout this, you know, whole, you know, revelation in Ohio and this criminal complaint is, is the lack of surprise that any of this activity was going on. It seems like everyone knew it was going on and there was almost a resignation of that's just the way things work in Ohio. Is, is that a fair observation? And if so, you know, we obviously talked about the changes that may occur specifically to House Bill 6, but do you think it'll change the way business gets done in Ohio? That's a great question, Glenn. I think there is the opportunity to clean up some of the things that are clearly being abused if the allegations turn out to be correct uh, in this complaint against the former speaker and the others that are named in that complaint. The issue really comes down to a couple of things, one of which is you know, Ohio has pursued ethics reform in the past and gotten nowhere, and there was uh, at least one prior speaker that didn't even get a complaint filed against him and who had to leave office under a cloud of suspicion where nothing's come of it. And now we have a second speaker within five years who has a complaint filed that's the largest political scandal in the history of the state. So I think certainly in Ohio, there is an opportunity for things to be changed. I do think that people will be more careful about how they're approaching 
the way they do business. I think your comment is a fair one that people were shrugging their shoulders and saying, I guess this is what you're going to have to do in Ohio to get business done. And frankly, that never should have been the case. Having served under two prior speakers, that was never the case. Uh, one that was, I was in the party and one that I was not in their party. Uh, and these concerns were never thought to raised to this kind of an issue. They were two gentlemen that respected the institution and behaved in a way that was ethical and complied with the law. And as a result, we didn't always agree on policy, depending on which party was in the majority, but you could be fairly certain that you had an honest broker who was working to try and arrive at solutions that were the best for the people of the state of Ohio. And I think that's what we should aspire to and more. And so I'm hopeful that as a result of the allegations, whether they prove to be 100% true or some portion or none at all, that those who participate in the political process can have confidence in the legislature, that those who actively represent the interests of parties before the legislature, including folks like you and I, Glenn, can operate in a way that allows sound ideas to have a voice to be heard and that policymakers will make the best decisions they can, not be forced to make decisions that they're told are what need to be done in order to keep certain individuals or institutions happy. Well said, and let's let's hope those better days are ahead for Ohio. It certainly sounds like there were some better days in the past, and hopefully some good come out of this, because, you know, ultimately, as you said, it's the public's trust that's at stake here, and you know, we all want government that works well. In order to do that, you need, you know, good people in the right positions and a public that trusts them. We could probably talk about that the whole day, but uh, in the interest of time, why don't we move over to the other scandal? Glenn, can you give us the rundown on what's happened in Illinois? Sure, yes. And, you know, there's some parallels, obvious, to the Ohio situation, and there's uh, some things that are very, very different uh, about Illinois. And as I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, the biggest difference in Illinois is we have Exelon, the utility involved, uh, agreeing to the facts. And uh, you can read the uh, deferred prosecution agreement. You know, the activities are, are a little dissimilar from those in Ohio, but they had the same intent. And that was uh, you had ComEd, you know, the major utility in the Chicago area, um, making certain payments, giving jobs to folks, arranging for certain individuals to be put on their board of directors um, with the intention of currying favor with um, the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Illinois with the intention of influencing legislation. And that is right there in the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. So, uh, like I said, it's uh, facts that have been agreed to by Exelon. We have yet to hear from Speaker Madigan in Illinois. So, obviously, you know, we will certainly, I think, at some point hear from him. Uh, there have been several staff changes uh, in ComEd. Uh, specifically, uh, the president of ComEd Utility, while she, she was in the organization, now she's, she's no longer with the company. They have instituted some pretty significant um, internal controls, and I think those are still being evaluated by the uh, Illinois Commerce Commission. So uh, we are very much in the middle of a federal investigation still uh, in Illinois. We have uh, Exelon agreeing to cooperate with the authorities on this. I was part of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. And the Illinois Commerce Commission, uh, we talked earlier about what the Public Utility Commission of Ohio should do. The Illinois Commerce Commission has already started. Uh, they've already started to have public hearings in which they were asking some very, very tough questions of comment, you know, all mostly all related to how the money was spent, what it was being spent on, 
you know, whether there were any inappropriate expenditures being made and what, if any, contributions um, ratepayers should be making. I will note as part of the deferred prosecution agreement, Exelon's agreeing to pay a $200 million fine. Um, they were very clear about that. Uh, I would also note, um, you know, that Exelon, the deferred prosecution agreement was signed by Exelon. Uh, it was not signed by ComEd. It was signed by the uh, gentleman that they put, they put in place to, you know, manage the uh, internal controls associated with activities related with this. So, again, I think there's another place where we're kind of early in the game, relatively speaking. I think we'll hear more uh, about, um, you know, whether it's more individuals or more activities as time goes on. Uh, again, this is uh, a long way from over, and a lot that needs to be played out here. But that's that's an overview of Illinois. Glenn, you were very specific there in mentioning that Exelon was the entity signing and making these agreements. What does that indicate to you? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you the most of the activity in the complaint is related to activity of ComEd. The complaint, or excuse me, the deferred prosecution agreement was not signed by. Uh, a ComEd employee it wasn't signed by ComEd's counsel. It was signed by an individual that's recently come over to Exelon to report directly to the CEO and to the board. Uh, this is post uh, some of the revelations related to these activities. I'm not sure exactly when he came on. I think it's within the last you know six months to a year. But yes, it was it was, it was clear that you know the uh, the resolution of this deferred prosecution agreement was being managed. Uh, at the Exelon level, not at the utility level. And, and Todd, what similarities and differences do you see between what's unfolding in Illinois versus Ohio? Boy, that's a great question. There are a number of really dramatic similarities, and there are some differences, and I think Glenn noted a couple of those. But the similarities really center around a couple of things. You have very large, very powerful, politically connected utilities who find themselves in a position where their former support for markets has waned as a result of the change in economics to the resource mix that is now powering the mid-Atlantic states and 65 million Americans. And so rather than adapt to the changing environment, there has been a pivot to a political solution and a change in position and a very strong vocal commitment to zero emission resources when in the late 2000s and early 2010s, there was no concern about whether they were zero emission resources because they were making boatloads of money for the owners. Once the worm turned and natural gas was abundant and inexpensive, uh, those organizations and others have changed their view and said that, well, the markets don't work. And because markets aren't working well for us, we, we think the market should change. And since the market doesn't appear that it's willing to change, we're gonna pursue out of market support in whatever fashion we can secure it in a way that'll allow us and our shareholders to continue to make money, we'll continue to operate the plants, and if consumers have to pay more for it, well then that's that's their problem, not ours perspective. And I think that's been consistent, not just in Illinois and Ohio, but you saw efforts to secure the same kind of payments in Pennsylvania, which were ultimately unsuccessful thus far. But you saw a very similar playbook at work in New Jersey, and they were successful in New Jersey in securing a $300 million a year bailout for the better part of a decade, using many of the same tactics. It's jobs, it's zero emission uh, resources, it's the market is broken and we should do something different, and states, you should take control of this because it's better for your consumers if you control all the decisions, which at the end of the day, 
The market has driven dramatic emissions reductions. The market has delivered dramatic reductions in price of electricity and energy to consumers. And rather than support that and lean into a market-based solution where there are opportunities for success, and full disclosure, my members are the folks who are doing exactly that. They are adapting and they are improvising and they are finding ways to compete and do so profitably. The general consensus from many of the owners of troubled resources is to pursue a political option and in hopes that they can slide it by the General Assembly and consumers pick up the bill and we move on to whatever the next issue might be. And so those similarities have played out in multiple jurisdictions virtually from the Midwest all the way to the East Coast. And I think that pattern is troubling and hopefully as a result of some of the things that unfortunately occurred or are alleged to have occurred in Ohio, we might have legislatures taking a more careful uh, eye on what the facts and circumstances might be when a utility comes to them and says, we just need this because we say so. There hopefully will be greater scrutiny, a requirement that the economics and the books be opened so that people can have a chance to see what the actual numbers are as opposed to the trust me uh, perspective, which I don't think has been useful for anyone. Yeah, and if I could just piggyback on that, I mean, I think that is one of the bigger lessons to be learned from this whole set of events in the last month, and that is, you know, utility regulators as well as policymakers, legislators just need to be more vigilant uh, and and more more questioning of assertions by utilities. I mean, in PJM, we had three states that made the decision to subsidize uh, nuclear units, and two of those three states. We now know that those bills were passed with, and I'll be careful with the adjectives I use here, but I mean, in, in Illinois, um, it was certainly passed, you know, with one of the major companies involved making payments with the intention of influencing that legislative outcome. And it certainly looks like in Ohio, we have a similar set of facts emerging. And I was knee deep in the New Jersey process on behalf of P3, and that was one of the more bruising processes I've ever been a part of uh, just in the legislature as well as at the commission. You know, the Board of Public Utilities was put in a brutally tough spot um, by legislation that was very poorly written and really put the commission in a tough spot to the point where even the commission, the Board of Public Utilities, their staff was saying, we don't think these plants need the money. And the owners still decided that they were going to try to you know, uh, threat them, threaten them with closure of those facilities. So I think, you know, throughout the PJM footprint, hopefully this serves as a wake up call to, to all others involved in these discussions that you just have to be, you know, more scrupulous in your evaluations of these assertions. Yeah. Bringing it back to Illinois, Todd, you mentioned, and I thought this was an interesting point, the ongoing tactic of sort of an end around the market and we're seeing this sort of play out in PJM, maybe play out in PJM with this FRR conversation, this fixed resource requirement, which is part of PJM's markets. It's an option, but it requires this much larger infrastructure of going back to uh, each state and state legislatures putting in uh, legislation that will ostensibly move these states back towards uh, regulation, but within PJM's operating footprint still. How do either of you guys see these events and what's unfolding with Exelon? Uh, how do you see that impacting their ability to push for this FRR legislation in, in Illinois? At the risk of repeating what Glenn uh, just said, I think it's an, not just a uh, option, it's an obligation of policymakers 
to be very thoughtful and very careful in evaluating claims about what savings may happen or how this will be better for the market. And the, the challenge that you have, and I'm not sure about Illinois, but I know in Ohio, we have term limits in Ohio, and that makes it hard to have a subject matter expert who can respond to things and throw a flag that says you're being uh, less than forthright in the information you're providing. You know, when utilities or others cherry pick years of data and say, well, we should use this as our benchmark as opposed to taking a three or a five year average because it's going to show certain things to be more favorable than they actually are in reality. It's hard for legislators who aren't experienced in the energy space to know that that's the game that's being played and then what questions they should ask. And so I think it's incumbent upon policymakers and, and commissioners for that matter to ask hard questions and when they don't know, to make sure that their staff is reaching out to other perspectives and making sure that they're getting the information they need. At the end of the day, they may still decide to take a course of action that I may or may not agree with and our EPSA members may or may not agree with. But if they're doing so with full information and making a policy choice that they believe is in their best interest, that's one approach. If instead they're just taking the word of a utility who has a profound in, uh, vested interest in the outcome and saying, well, I guess because they're the local incumbent, I should believe them and I should do what's best for them uh, without thinking at all about what the overall implications might be to consumers and their constituents, then I think that's problematic. And so I think it's incumbent upon folks, especially now, to very carefully scrutinize things like an FRR, which is incredibly complicated. It is not as easy as it, it can be explained, which is we get to take control and states win and clean energy resources will win the day to the detriment of all other resources. That sounds great. You know, it's a good bumper sticker slogan, but the reality is it's far more complicated and far less clear about just what the costs will be and the implications are to consumers' bills than some would have you believe. Let's talk about the national situation. New FERC nominees. Any thoughts on the, the new nominees and what that could mean for the future at FERC? Well, I think certainly having a full slate of five commissioners would be a welcome addition to the regulatory practice, certainly in Washington. While the commission has been doing yeoman's work with less than a full contingent, I think the commission's work is uh, better served by having all five commissioner seats filled with the opportunity for all of them to weigh in on these very important policy decisions. As Glenn noted uh, a few moments ago about the MOPR, I mean, there are those important issues, but literally dozens of others that remain outstanding, that thoughtful uh, reflection and decisions that have the support of a majority, if not the unanimous support of all five commissioners, really helps ensure the certainty that the market desires in order to make good investments. And so I wish both candidates well in their confirmation process. I hope that they can move expeditiously through the process in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee and ultimately be confirmed because the sooner we have a full slate of uh, FERC commissioners, the better. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And I think one of the interesting things that's going to be fun to watch over the next several months is the changing dynamics at, at FERC, because I've always been amazed the difference that one commissioner can make uh, at a regulatory commission. And here we have two folks coming in, two very seasoned individuals, I would add, who know regulatory policy, have terrific backgrounds and terrific depths and knowledge. 
Uh, but it's going to take a little while for those dynamics to you know, shake out among the commissioners. I mean, we have a relatively new commissioner and Commissioner Dan Lake and Chairman Chatterjee at this point are the seasoned veterans of the commission. Um, and then you're going to have two new folks coming in and Commissioner Brackney leaving on September 4th. So uh, I think it's going to take a little while for, for this new complement to settle into a groove. Um, but certainly, you know, given their backgrounds and experience and, you know, the heady issues that are involved here, I think for could be a very dynamic uh, landscape here for the next couple of years, for sure, especially if there's a change in administration, which, which there may be. I mean, who knows at this point? We're not going to get into predicting the election. Uh, but certainly, you know, it's it's possible at this time next year we have new leadership at FERC. Well, let's move on. Todd, here is your opportunity for some self-promotion. Uh, you've been at EPSA now for a little over a year. How's it going? And And tell us, what exactly does EPSA do? Well, that's a great question, Rory, and I am more than happy to take this chance to answer. EPSA is the only national trade association that represents independent power producers or competitive power generators who are non-utility generators, meaning our members are in a position where they are required to compete to be able to operate, and if they operate, they receive compensation from the market, and if they don't operate or they're not the least cost, most efficient plant, they don't operate meaning they don't have the backstop of ratepayers to ensure that they achieve a specified rate of return. They're under every obligation to operate as safely and with the same reliability as vertically integrated utilities may be, but they rely purely on the market for their resources. And that is what sets them apart from many of the other models that are there. Uh, our members own all types of resources. So our, our member fleet includes everything from coal to natural gas to nuclear to renewables to two of the largest battery storage projects in the world. Uh, and we are seeing that fleet evolve over time. You're seeing uh, more coal retirements and investments being made in natural gas, but also renewables and in battery storage in particular, as we look to what the grid is going to look like going forward. And so EPSA members really find themselves on the cutting edge in many ways because they have to be ready to adapt and adopt new technologies because it is an, that will ensure that they can profit from that. And really what you've seen, and I mentioned before, is that the competitive generators have successfully driven down emissions and reduced cost to consumers in markets like PJM to the tune of about 34% of emissions reductions, which was an unintended consequence of the market. But we're looking at record lows at the wholesale power price, which is a win for consumers all around. And so EPSA advocates for strong markets. We want the market to exist in a way that is fair to all market participants. And in the end, what we need in order for our members and others to invest and to make sound economic decisions is a durable regulatory framework. And really, the consumers are asking for sustainable environmental progress. And that typically means lower emissions as we look at what the future may hold for the generation fleet. And our members are front and center on helping to achieve both of those objectives. And so we simply advocate for a competitive market that allows all market participants to have the same opportunity to compete. Because when entities compete against each other, consumers win. It's kind of wild that, you know, there has to be this sort of a vanguard in defense of competition, which is sort of kind of at the basis of, you would think, at the basis of sort of our American capitalistic system. But what do you see as the biggest challenges facing your organization near term and more long term? I think that there's a handful of challenges, but they're fairly serious in virtually every instance. Uh, you have situations where 
In PJM, for example, there hasn't been a base residual auction run in nearly two years, and the lack of an auction makes it very difficult for investment decisions to be made. It makes it hard for my members and market participants to know where they should deploy their capital in a way that will allow them to earn the right rate of return. It might mean retiring certain resources or investing in new resources, but if I don't know what I need to do in order to ensure that I can participate effectively in the market, that's a problem. I think we're also experiencing a dramatic amount of tension between wholesale markets and state prerogatives, and states are acting in a way that suggests that they are willing to accept the many benefits that come from wholesale markets, but they want to have the ability to pull back and take control over generation resources. And certainly there is a state uh, uh, authority over what generating resources exist, but when you participate in the market, there are certain rules that need to apply to all market participants. And so the tension between federal wholesale markets and state policy choices and what has you know, been labeled the state's rights argument is profound. And that gives rise to some of the issues we've previously talked about, including FRR and other issues. And so I think those are very important issues, but I think the third issue that also is incumbent upon our members and others to wrap uh, their heads around is what is the political climate going to be and what are the policy choices that are going to be made that sound really good, but are a challenge when it comes to operating the grid reliably? Because Americans rightfully have come to expect that electricity is ubiquitous and it is on 100% of the time. And if you introduce uncertainty or re reduce reliability, consumers are not going to accept that. In fact, they're going to bristle at the notion that they can't charge their iPhone or their car or watch television or have their Wi-Fi, particularly at times like this when we're all working from home. An interruption to electric service would be a dramatic impact on the ability of people to be able to provide for their families and for businesses to continue to operate. And so I think we have to manage in a very pragmatic sense the aspirational objectives of certain interests along with the physics and reliability requirements of the electric grid. And we can unify those and look towards achieving common objectives, but I think timelines and expectations need to be more carefully managed than perhaps is happening at the moment. All right, well, it certainly sounds like you got your plate full, Todd, and congratulations on getting through your first year at EPSA. But uh, as we normally like to do here on the show, we like to end with a few rapid fire questions. So we're just going to throw, throw a few out of here and, and see where we get. So right, how, how does a kid from Binghamton, New York, run for office in Ohio? <laughs> the short version is term limits. And my predecessor <laughs> was term limited. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to uh, successfully run in a primary and win and then be one of the only Republicans to successfully win an election in Ohio in 2008 and then was reelected in 2010. Now, in Ken, Ohio, is it better to run as a Steelers fan or a Browns fan or a Bengals fan? <laughs> it's better to be an Ohio State fan. Oh, good I point. Bet. I good bet, point. yeah, yeah. That's a really okay. good point, yeah. I got a question for you on that one too, Todd. Are they going to change the name of Columbus ever, or is that just a lot of uh, hot air at this point? You know, if you'd asked me that a month ago, I would have had a different answer. I don't know the answer. That would be something. Indeed. Hey, Todd, I, I didn't realize that you had spent your, your youth in the Binghamton area. I have spent a little bit of time there myself. Do you happen to know where Brackney, Pennsylvania is? 
I do. My grandparents uh, had a place at Laurel Lake, just across the border from Peterson, and I spent many a summer day there. Well, that is amazing. I have a friend, shout out to Sean Connedy, who lives just outside of Quaker Lake. So uh, it's, it's amazing how, how that whole area. It, it really is, and, and I'm sure that you know this. It's crazy to me how Binghamton is maybe 10 minutes away from there, and it feels like it is thousands of miles away from any stretch of civilization. It's a Indeed. really interesting area. Yes. Well, that's big shell territory now up in that part of the state. That's so, uh, oh, it, the cheapest it, it is quite. Yeah, yeah. My friend has a pad on his uh, on his property, actually. Is that right? So, terrific. All right, Todd, uh, you managed to play a lot of golf in the pandemic? Uh, not as much as I would like, but more than I probably should. <laughs> That's true. If you got a favorite golf course you want to give a shout out to? Uh, I, I'm, kind of, I'm a big fan of Pinehurst number four. Uh, okay, huh? not number two. Everybody likes number two, I thought. Huh? You have to be a much better golfer than I am to enjoy uh, it. Fair <laughs> enough, fair. Well, Todd... So I'm going to brag on Todd for a minute. I played with Todd. We were in Palm Springs at PGA West. And what did you have, four or five birdies that day, Todd? You were on fire that day. I, I played a very good round at the stadium course. I, I assume it was the company. <laughs> there you go. Rory and I tend to elevate everybody's games. That's what we do. <laughs> I will ask this, though. Uh, what is your favorite dive bar in D.C.? And after that, compare it to Columbus. Wow. Uh, I don't know that I have a favorite dive bar in D.C., although I do like the bar at Aqua Aldue in Eastern Market. And I would say that in Columbus, my favorite dive bar was Ringside, which is a little hole-in-the-wall bar down an alley not far from the State House, which had been there for over 100 years and was a terrific location to get, you know, half a block away from the State House, but still be able uh, to have a great conversation over some suds and have some good burgers. Uh, and I'm not sure how healthy it was, but man, it was my favorite place. All right, lightning round follow-up, best dive bar in Binghamton. And you can't say all of them. <laughs> I don't think there was one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, toughest job you've ever had? Uh, PUCO chairman. Mm, mm. Uh, you didn't even hesitate on that one. Yeah, no. I was going to say, boy. We're seeing why. All right. And our last rapid fire question, probably uh, my favorite here on the list is, who's going to say the boring good more often, you or Rob Powelson? Rob Powelson, but I will attribute the quote to him every chance I get. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Hopefully he got the trademark on that one. All right. Well, now for the part of our podcast and every episode we always take a moment at the end or a few moments at the end to hand out some unsolicited advice to anyone in the world that you think needs it right now. Todd, let's start with you. You got two minutes with anybody, anywhere. Who are you going with and what are you telling them? I, I think that I would suggest that there are those who have great interest in energy and I think that is fundamentally important. We need people to be engaged on the energy front. There are a lot of very important questions before us, and there are a lot of hopes and dreams about how the world will evolve and change over time. But I think what is fundamentally important is that people keep in mind that electricity is what drives the world. And having reliable electricity means more than just hoping for the best. 
the operators who make the plants operate, the utilities that run the wires that deliver it to your house or to your business, and to the consumers that have to pay the bill, there is a dramatic interlinking of interests. And so before one aspires to upset the status quo with a profound change in very short periods of time, there needs to be recognition about what that could mean and how that will impact the people on the receiving end of that public policy. And so my suggestion is not that change shouldn't come and not that change isn't good, but that we need to be thoughtful about how that change will actually be effectuated so that we don't sacrifice reliability, so that we don't jeopardize the reliability of the grid and that consumers are not held hostage to outrageously high costs that they can't afford. Yeah, I think those are really good points and thoughts that are often lost in the noise, either really deep into the details uh, as we sometimes get, but also uh, sort of fly under the radar for public perception, as we talked about earlier. Glenn, what do you have this month? Yeah, I'm going to give my advice this month to utility CEOs broadly, and I'm going to do so and channel a little bit of Commissioner Danley who talks a lot about the role of the humble regulator. I think there's something to be said for being the humble utility these days, particularly light of the issues that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Utility companies play a terrific role. They provide a tremendous service. They enhance the quality of life to folks throughout the country and the world. But those utility businesses rely heavily, heavily on the ability of government policymakers and regulators to provide a means by which they can pursue a successful business strategy. And obviously, utilities invest heavily in public policy. They also invest heavily in political donations and political activity. It's the nature of the beast. Uh, but sometimes um, utilities can take it a little too far and take it a little bit, you know, when I look at, you know, some of the, the activity that has occurred in the last couple of months, I couldn't help but think that if the utilities had been a little bit more humble, had a little bit, been a little bit less aggressive in some of their ass, a little bit less full of their ability to do things um, outside the scope of not only good quality government, but perhaps the law, as we may find out, bad things happen. So my advice to utility CEOs is be a little humble. Respect your customers, respect the, the service that you're expected to provide, and at the end of the day, create a better society for ratepayers throughout the country. All right. Glenn, on to the last portion of our podcast. We call it the GT Power Hour, but of course, as you know, we always want to get you out of here in less than an hour. It is looking very close again this month. We had a lot to discuss and run through with Todd, but looking like we're going to be right on the nose with an hour. So sorry, you won't have much time back, but you got a lot of good information this month. Okay, last thoughts from everybody. Let's start with you, Glenn. No, thanks, Todd, for joining us. A wonderful conversation as always. And, uh, you know, we, we might want to make an appointment for next August and see where we are a year from now, because I have a feeling it's going to be a fascinating year. And Todd, any, any last thoughts from you? Uh, thank you, Glenn, for the invite. Uh, agreed. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, I agree. Uh, I'll mark my calendar for next August. Because <laughs> I think there will be profound changes between now and then in any number of areas. And I look forward to a conversation about where we are and where we're going in 2021. Well, Todd, we very much appreciate you kind of coming in on short notice 
as the topic expert. So as always, we will leave you with be excellent to each other. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.